Hi. Hi. So, um, what's this book about? You didn't read this one either? Well, I was gonna, but I uh, accidentally read something else. What? Vogue. I hated the book. All right? I have no idea what it's about, and the writer was clearly on drugs when he wrote it. I mean, it just, it went on and on and on like it was written in a total hurry. If I handed in something like this, there's no way I'd get a good grade on it. I mean, it's boring and it's unorganized. And I only read 30 pages of it anyway. Well, that was passionate, albeit entirely misinformed. Who dares follow Miss Kelly's lucid analysis? It's required reading. With Tom and Stella. Episode 62, Twelfth Night, or What You Will, by William Shakespeare. I left no ring with her. What means this lady? Fortune forbid. My outside have not charmed her. She made good view of me. Indeed, so much that surely thought her eyes had lost her tongue, for she did speak in starts distractedly. She loves me, sure. The cunning of her passion invites me, and this churlish messenger, none of my lords ring why he sent her none. I am the man. If it be so as tis, poor lady, she were better love a dream. Welcome to Required Reading with Tom and Stella, a podcast that is brought to you by the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network. This podcast is all about books and literature, and each month we take a thorough look at one piece of literature. We have both read and determined whether or not it is required reading. As always, I'm Tom Paneris, and with me is the viola to my Sebastian. Stella. I think that's pretty accurate. We've been having it, some tough times recently with it, but that <laughs> this one works really well, especially because Dipper I and mean, Mabel, you know, they're they had the twins <laughs> thing going on as well. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. So how are you? Hey, I'm doing okay. This what is this January? I can't tell you what the New Year's like, but yeah, because we're recording we, in December, but it's yeah, January. <laughs> yeah. Since we last recorded. I got into grad school. Is that true? <laughs> I mean, it's true that I got into grad school. I just don't know if that's 
feel like we recorded before I got the news. But anyways, so. yeah, so I am following in my brother's footsteps <laughs> and hopefully getting my master's in education. And my brother, I have many things to thank, but I like peppered him with questions about, you know, the application and GRE scores and all these sorts of things and which classes pair well together. So he's kind of like my my mentor as well. Just it's it's good to have someone that went through the process and can kind of tell you things that they know now in hindsight that you can take and run with. Yeah. And, and I was going through the program when we started this show. That's crazy. Cause we started the show, I think in the fall of 2016, sometime in 2016, maybe the summer of 2016. If I, if I'm trying to, I'm trying to remember this correctly. And, um, uh, yeah. And I was, I was in my, maybe at halfway through the program at that point. So, yeah, that was that was pretty cool. So it is possible to do this podcast and <laughs> go to grad <laughs> yes. school. And I guess do other podcasts too. Yeah. And teach full time. And in my case be a parent. <laughs> and all the other things. Yeah. All the things. All the things. So. <laughs> um but no, no, congratulations. Thank and, you. Uh, you'll have to you'll have to keep me I, I'm sure you will keep me updated oh, as sure. to how it is going. At least to beg you for copies of books that materials. You yeah. <laughs> Notes. <laughs> if yep. I still I might still have some. I don't I have some stuff. So we'll yeah. But um but before you head off to the hallowed um halls or virtual halls, depending on what you're doing, of the university again. Um, we're going to talk about another hallowed, that's a bad transition. We're going to talk about, uh, <laughs> we're going to talk about Shakespeare. William uh, Shakespeare. Shakespeare. Yes, Shakespeare. Um, yeah, so we're talking about Twelfth Night tonight, which is this is the third. This makes Shakespeare the most covered author on this <gasps> show. Um but really, that's only because we don't really we, we we have repeated a couple of authors, but we tend to uh, we don't really have a pattern in what we cover aside from the the specials. You know, we just kind of pick what we're, you know, sometimes one of us one or, we'll 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 know ahead of time because like in the case of like Les Miserables or um, Don Quixote, for instance, we gave each other a significant amount of lead time. Um, especially like with Don Quixote, because that, that thing is that, that's a tome, right? And I suppose if we were reading War and Peace, right, or, or something on the order of like a large Tolstoy novel, uh, we'd give each other a couple of months. But yeah, for the most part, it's just like okay, like what are you interested in reading this month, and and you come up with it. And I had I don't know, I had Twelfth Night on the brain or whatever, and uh, and that's where we got. But yeah, we've done two tragedies at this point, so this is our first comedy. And um, and it is and I'm going to go into the history of the play, of course, I'll do a little bit of Shakespeare's life at this point. He's one of those authors that gets so studied that you that the way I've approached him whenever I've covered um, when I've covered the two that I covered Macbeth and then doing this is I've just kind of looked at what he was doing at the time as opposed to doing the entire life story, William Shakespeare, Mm -hmm. and then a little bit of background on Twelfth Night, the concept, as well as a little bit about who the Puritans were, because just a little historical context. Then we'll do the plot and the discussion as we always do. But before we get into that, um, I guess I should ask you, uh, you know, what's your history 
Uh, have you read Twelfth Night before this? Uh, do you? What's your experience with Shakespeare? It's Shakespeare's comedies and Twelfth Night in spe- specifically. Yeah, not too many comedies. I don't know what that says about me, but more more the dramas and the historic plays are the ones the I tend towards, and that yeah, the histories, and that's potentially just due to what my English teachers were assigning me at the time and I wasn't mm-hmm. necessarily going out of my way to read more Shakespeare <laughs> outside of the classroom. Few setting. do. <laughs> yeah. After or once I gathered my list for the Rory Gilmore's reading list, I think the other two that popped up were Hamlet and Othello. So again, still not mm. with the levity. I think, Potentially the only comedy that I read before this was Midsummer Night's Dream. That tracks. That tends to be one that a lot of people read at one point or another. Yeah. I And I did it in preparation for the school that I used to work at was putting on that play. It used to be mm-hmm. that every other year would be a Shakespeare year. They did away with that once the drama, that particular drama teacher left. So I definitely knew that. But even before that, I knew of, well, I guess Taming of the Shrew, but only through adaptations. Mm-hmm. And I did recently read Taming of the Shrew because I went up to Broadway before COVID and saw Kiss Me Kate, which was lovely. Oh, okay. But I just knew of, <laughs> I knew of this because of She's the Man. And I think at the time, and potentially just leading up to this, I thought, well, that's, I have a good sense of what, what Twelfth Night is by watching She's the Man. So, you know, why mess it up? So that's basically my history. But I'm I'm surprised it took me so long to read it because I had a fun time reading it. It was, it was really enjoyable. So... Yeah, more comedies. I get. I don't really know how many more comedies are. Oh, I'm sure there are more. To the Gentlemen of Verona is that a comedy? To Gentlemen of Verona, yeah, yeah that's okay. a comedy. I'll just have yeah. to go out of my way to read more Shakespearean comedy. Cool. All right. Yeah, mine is actually a little more involved um, because I now, granted, in high school we were given tragedies. Um. I think the tragedies to a high school to high school teachers are easier to teach. I see. To be completely honest with you, because I think um, just just in my recollection of the comedies uh, versus the tragedies, uh, there's a plot in the comedies, but the comedies rely on a lot more of like far as the jokes rely on a lot more of the character understanding of the language. Um, Whereas the tragedy, you can go, you know, you are obviously relying on character and language, but there's a lot more, there's a lot more of a cohesive plot to say Julius Caesar or Macbeth, as opposed to um, Midsummer or Twelfth Night or As You Like It um, or Taming, where there is a plot and, and events do happen in a certain order, but it's always topsy turvy, increasing, confusing on purpose because that's part of the joke and. Mm-hmm. Whereas Macbeth has sort of Macbeth's a lot more linear, right? So you can it's a little easier to follow, um, and the the action and and pathos and the tragedy of a tragedy of the dramas, um, I think translates to high school students better than the comedies, you know, because the, the jokes don't always land. Um, I have taught this. Um, 
because this was so in high school, I read three tragedies. I read the play. I read Julius Caesar and I read um, Macbeth uh, in college. The first comedy I read, it might have been The Taming of the Shrew. I'm trying to think. I took a, or it might have been As You Like It. I took a poli-sci elective that was called Sexual Politics and Literature. So it was like a lot of feminist politics and, and literature. And um, as you, I think as you like it, in addition to like all these Greek comedies, like all these Aristophanes plays <clears throat> was, was, was part of it. Uh, this was the first Shakespeare play I ever saw performed though. There was a traveling company that came to my college, Loyola college in Maryland and now Loyola university um, in the fall of 95, it was the fall of 95 or the spring of 96. And they performed in a very minimalist sort of way, you know, like with theater boxes and just basic costumes and stuff. Uh, Twelfth night. And it was done in this really quick tempo way. Uh, and I laughed my butt off <laughs> through the through the whole thing. I was like, this is so funny. Um, and the name of the company was called the Shenandoah Shakespeare Express. They eventually evolved and became uh, the American Shakespeare Center wow. at the Blackfriars Theater in Stanton, okay. which is about an hour away from here. Yeah, so I saw them before they had established themselves in, in the Blackfriars Theater. And um, it wasn't until years later where I went to see this at the Blackfriars. I've seen this twice at the Blackfriars. I took students to take it, uh, to see it, where I read through the history of the you know, uh, ASC in the program between, you know, before the show. And I was like, oh, this was the Shenandoah Shakespeare Express back in the mid nineties. So yeah, I saw them. And then I, uh, at one point in my college career, I decided to pick up an English minor because I was a creative writing major, um, with a concentration in political science. Um, cause at one point I thought I was going to be a lawyer. And um, and then I decided to pick up an English minor because I had the space for a minor. And I took a class. I was like, oh, I'm going to take a class in Shakespeare. And Shakespeare one was taught by a professor I didn't particularly like. So I took Shakespeare two, who was taught by uh, Dr. Tom Shy, who was our university provost, great teacher, and it was all comedy. So it was this. It was Measure for Measure, The Taming of the Shrew, As You Like It. Um, Oh, all's well that ends well, much do about nothing. Uh, the Tempest, uh, you know, there are a couple other ones that I'm, that I'm blanking on too. General Rona. And we just read through the comedies through the entire semester. And then, um, I just really fell in love with Shakespeare's comedies. Um, as you like it, this and the taming of the shrew and Midsummers are probably my favorites. And, uh, when I finally came to be a teacher and started teaching Shakespeare, uh, to sophomores, I went back and forth between this and Midsummer Night's Dream, uh, depending on what I felt like teaching and or what was go being played at the Blackfriars Theater, the American Shakespeare Center, because sometimes we would go see him. And um, yeah, so and and I also used was able to show she's the man in class. So yeah, because well, we started watching a straight up adaptation of the movie of the show of the thing once. And like we got about 20 minutes, 10 minutes in and I, and I sh shut the movie off. I was like, guys, are you as bored as I am? They're like, yeah. 
I was like, all right, well, let's just talk a little bit about the play. We talked a little bit more about the play and stuff like that. And I said, well, I said, tomorrow we'll just start watching She's the Man. They were like, okay, because I, I just, I love that movie too. So, and to plug something else that you're going to be on, dropping the, the, this this episode, as I transition into the background on Twelfth Night, is a crossover episode with my other show, Pop Culture Affidavit. So this is going to drop in the middle of January. The week after this episode drops, the next episode of Pop Culture Affidavit is going to drop, episode 128. And that is going to be Stella and I talking about She's the Man. So come for the Shakespeare. Stay for um, Amanda Bynes. Uh, like Amanda Bynes, brilliant comedic timing, by the way. Oh, for sure. Like so brilliant. And Channing Tatum doing Blue Steel for 90 minutes. Yes, that's also um, true. Yes, yes, exactly. So, no, it's a really hilarious movie. So we're going to be talking about that in about a week. But, um, yeah, but that, that's my that's my 12th night story. I've read this many, many times. <laughs> uh, taught at it for a few years. I still had some of my materials, actually. So I cribbed my summary um, f- of the play from the summary that I used to provide for students. <laughs> For those who needed help. And some of the questions actually were some discussion questions from like eight years ago. <laughs> so, that works out. Yeah, it does work out. So, yeah. So let's let's get into it, shall we? Shall we get into the background? I think so. All right. Stella, of course you do, because I'm the one who's going to read. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I just sit, sit here and relax and... this time around. Yeah, and uh, yeah, you get to put the mute button on, and, and I get to lull everybody to sleep with my dulcet tones. Um, my research for this, or my resources for this, were, of course, Wikipedia, but also uh, the Norton Shakespeare, of which um, my wife still has her copy from from uh, the hallowed halls of the university. And um, the Shakespeare annotated audiobook. Now, this is an audiobook version of Twelfth Night that this is actually what I listened to to, to prep for this. Um, it's a bit tedious, but what it is is that it's the full length of the play acted out by actors and a very pleasant sounding English woman will butt in every once in a while and explain a scene or give you some notes on some stuff or give you some background or explain thematic scenes or something. So it's almost like um, it's the audio. It's almost like an audio book with director or, or some sort of academic commentary that plays along with it. Um, and so I, I happen to listen to that because usually whenever I have to read Shakespeare, I actually will listen to an audio book and sometimes I will read along with the audio book. Uh, so that's what I do with Macbeth and um, Caesar. And I've done that with Midsummers and, uh, and, and, and Romeo and Juliet. Uh, but this, I did the annotated thing. So that, that's one of my sources because they have a lot of background information and stuff in there. So, All right. So uh, I'm going to start before we even get to Shakespeare, before we get to play, I'm going to start with actually the title of the play, or at least the, the main title of the play, which is Twelfth Night. Twelfth uh, Night is a reference to something that would have recently passed once this episode drops, which is the Feast of the Epiphany. That is when Christians celebrate the coming of the three wise men to the baby Jesus. Um, the Epiphany also coincided with the pagan New Year when it was celebrated in in full force. It is still celebrated in Christianity, but it was essentially like a big festival back in like Shakespeare's time. You know, there was just a lot of 
kind of like debauchery. <laughs> it's almost like a Mardi Gras type of thing from some of the research I did into it, um, which includes a little bit of reading here and there. And there's an episode of the Great British Bake Off, um, I think the Masterclass show, where they talk about one of the Christmas Masterclasses, where they talk about how uh, Twelfth Night used to be this big thing. And then it really is the um, the, the Victorians who um, start pushing Christmas because Christmas was a little more pious and a little more reserved. So uh, thank you, repressed white people. Um, also, the 12 Days of Christmas, that song that we all know, um, uh, that is in reference to you know, the 12th day of Christmas and the epiphany and everything. So there are still vestiges of this, this idea in our, um, in our culture. But yeah, the history of Christmas and the holidays is always interesting, especially because of the way it's basically, you know, let's co-opt Saturnalia so that we can, you know, push our agenda. <laughs> anyway, uh, but I do need to point out some of the politics as well. Um, speaking of, of Christians and politics, uh, because uh, this came out, this was, this was first produced uh, like 1601, right? And uh, this is still at the very tail end of the reign of Elizabeth I. Uh, Elizabeth I dies in 1603, and she's succeeded by James I. She and James I were both patrons of Shakespeare. But at the time this is being produced, there was a growing movement in England called the Puritans. Um, and some people have heard of the Puritans uh, and um, and that movement and and that movement I mentioned because it is satirized in this play, mainly through the character of Malvolio. Uh, Puritans in that movement uh, were a movement of English Protestants that began in the 16th century with the goal of purifying the Church of England. Uh, the Church of England has famously been created in 1534 when the Pope would not grant Henry VIII a divorce from Catherine of Aragon. Um, so he was like, I'm going to create my own church. And uh, at this point, well, at 1603, 1601 or whatever, he had only been around for not, not even 70 years. So the Puritans opposed the secular government. They wanted to make it accountable to God. Additionally, they opposed supremacy of the monarch in the church. Overall, the Puritans sought individual and corporate conformity to the teaching of the Bible with moral purity right down to the smallest detail. They would go on to eventually overthrow the government um, and execute Charles I in 1649. Oliver Cromwell is head of state at that point, but we would then get the restoration of the monarchy with Charles II in 1660. Now, if you hear Puritans, uh, the, you might not think of England and Oliver Cromwell, at least if you're in this country, you may think of... The Salem Witch Trials, mm. <laughs> because there was a Puritan movement. In fact, the pilgrims who came over in 1620 on the Mayflower were Puritans. And by all accounts, the Puritans in America were worse <laughs> than the ones in England. They were more radical. They were too radical for England, so they kicked them out. So, um, USA, USA. Yikes. Jesus Christ. <laughs> Just think of like, oh, great. Yeah, so... Slavery and religious extremism right after one another in in um, in the colonies in the in the early 1600s, the founding of our country. So there you go. 
Um, I'm going to get letters for that. Uh, okay, let's talk about Shakespeare's life at this point, 1601. He, this was in the middle of a very fruitful time. He's just come off of uh, your one of your favorite plays, Julius Caesar. And he's also just come off of Hamlet, which is like his magnum opus, as many people consider it, or one of them. Um, and later, a few years after this, he'll debut Othello. Uh, this is also right after his company has built the Globe Theater, of, which is, I think, the, Globe, the original Globe Theater dates to about 1599. And uh, that would burn down or be, built, be rebuilt in 1613. But 1601 is also the same year as his father has passed away. And uh, that's really all I, all I got. I mean, Shakespeare is well established at this point. Um, this is not early in his career. It's like mid to late career. It's mid, like mid career. It's almost like at his height. And um, he would he would have a number of successful plays after this. Um, this does seem to be one of one of the last, or if not the last, of like the great comedies. I'm trying to think of the other comedies that come after this, and the only one I can think of that gets as much recognition as say some of these others is The Tempest. Mm, you would consider but that a comedy. I think it's I think it's categorized in there, but I don't think it's a comedy in the way that a lot of these others are, mm -hmm. you know, but I think it kind of gets shoved in there because I don't know necessarily because the Tempest certainly isn't a tragedy, right? It's kind of a weird play. It's it is. I've always seen it. I saw it with an all female troupe. Yeah. Um, mm. But yeah, so there were certainly funny moments, but there are also... <laughs> Yeah, people people died. It it's almost like a sibling to a Midsummer Night's Dream, in a sense. Mm -hmm. And I don't think I'm just saying, and I'm not saying that just because I'm pretty sure that's what Neil Gaiman did in the Sandman comics. Uh. But but uh, but this um, but yeah, you're, the Tempest I think at least sometimes gets grouped in there with it. But and there's a couple other the comedies that come after this. But this is like this is kind of like one of the big the culmination of a lot of them. Um, and the play itself, like I said, 1601, and, and one of the things that people trace it to. Now, a lot of these dates are relative, and a lot of these dates are, are estimated mm -hmm. based on publications of things that were av available. It's not like um, it's not like you had IMDb in the 1600s. You know, we can't exactly go look up release dates of things for everything. Um, from a few hundred years ago and some of the plays they estimate based on when they were published, like in their first folio and all this, but there was a, uh, feast of the epiphany in the Royal court in 1601. And the name of the guest of honor that year, uh, was a 28 year old Italian nobleman named Don Sergino or Sergino Orsino, who was the Duke of Bracciano. And I'm really butchering that even even by like crappy Long Island standards that was butchered Italian. Um, you know, uh, anyway, Shakespeare's company, the Lord Chamberlain's men was the entertainment that night. It's possible that's where the name Orsino in the play actually comes from. Early performances of Twelfth Night date to 1602, with reviewers noting that the play was reviewed and compared to an earlier play of Shakespeare's, uh, A Comedy of Errors. Twelfth Night, in fact, has its own source material, especially Apollonius and Scylla, a story by Barnaby Ritchie, which itself is based on French and Italian sources. It is also inspired by a form of Italian comedy called Commedia dell'arte. That was a little bit better, uh, which is farcical and revels in the topsy turvies of its world. 
And uh, we should also note that it's likely our main character of Viola was definitely played by a teenage boy, since in that era, women were not allowed on stage, um, at least in the Elizabethan theater. There would have been maybe if there was an international comedy troupe or theater troupe traveling through England, they people in England would have seen women play roles because other com other countries did not necessarily have this restriction on women in the theater. But for the most part in Shakespeare's company, it would have been played by a play by a young boy or a teenage boy. And in fact, Shakespeare is giving that idea some criticism through having its um, main character be a woman in disguise and having her leave the stage without returning to her originally gendered form, I guess you could say. Um, just I mean, uh, like long a story. Pokemon. Viola. Viola <laughs> leaves. Yeah, I know it's weird. Viola leaves. The, Vi, Viola never goes and changes at the end of the story. She there's no like when you get to the end of Midsummer's and everybody's all like whack and everything and everybody kind of comes back on stage toward the end for the whole the, the conclusion and the, the Midsummer Night's Dream kind of drags its end anyway. Um, but they're all back in their kind of like official roles and costumes of, of who's who and whatnot. This ends with Viola still dressed as Cesario. So, you know, it's, it's possible he's making a point anyway. So, uh, but this has been performed for 400 years, more than 400 years, and it has been adapted a number of times. Um, according to Wikipedia, there have been a number of adaptations of the play even in musical theaters, uh, your own thing from 1968 music is from 1977 play on from 1997 and 2005's all shook up. were all musical adaptations, um, using, uh, various settings and songs like all shook up was like one of the, I guess they call them a jukebox musical where they're singing like rock and roll hits and stuff like that. It was all like Elvis oriented. It was also adapted at one point into a musical called Illyria, and there have been a number of television and radio adaptations as well. Welcome, 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 <laughs> welcome to... Do, do, do you know what that song is? No. I don't. Really? When the headmaster sings his little song about Illyria to oh, Amanda yes, Vine, yes. welcome, okay, welcome, yes. welcome to I forgot Illyria. David Cross is in that movie. <laughs> According to Wikipedia, there have been a number of adaptations. So in film, there's a 1910 silent version. There's a 1986 Australian adaptation, and most famously as far as uh, straight-up adaptations. And this is the one I tried to watch with my students. We were like, yeah, we're bored. Let's turn this off. It, it was a 1996 adaptation uh, directed by Trevor Nunn. It stars Imogene Stubbs as Viola, Helena Bottom Carter as Olivia, Toby Stevens as Duke Orsino. It also features Mel Smith as Sir Toby, Richard E. Grant as Sir Andrew, Sir Ben Kingsley as Festy, Imelda Stanton as Maria, and Nigel Hawthorne as Malvolio. Much of the comic material was downplayed into straightforward drama, and the film mm. received some criticism for this. Is that the one, one that of, you attempted to read or show? Yeah, so that's I what see. we tried to watch. We just got bored. We're like, let's well, let's just talk about the play and then watch She's the Man. Uh, She's the Man, I, I, we already mentioned, which came out in 2006. Um, She's the Man also has a little bit of a nod toward a, num a 1985 film that anybody who had uh, who, who who was of my age or a little bit older and, and anybody who really had cable back then, which I didn't, but 
those with cable will know what I'm talking about when I mention the Joyce Heiser movie, Just One of the Guys. Um, that is a, a, a girl disguising herself as a boy to go undercover in a high school as a journalist to get some scoop for some journalism contest or something. I don't know. It's it's a Billy Zab because the villain in it. Um, but uh, that was from 1985, which so it has a little bit of there's a little bit of Twelve Night in that one. But yeah, we will be reviewing She's the Man about a week from now on Pop Culture Affidavit. And I want to mention one last thing. Um, there are a few songs in the play, all sung by Festy. And uh, some of the songs have been adapted and recorded. Opera, operas based on Twelfth Night include Bedrick Smetana's Unfinished Viola from about 1874 and 1883 to 1884. Carl Weiss's Blizensi, 1892, in the second version in 1917. Ivan Jerko's Vesertr. This is the opera is my Jeopardy weakness category. Okay. Um, 1964 and Jan Klusak's. Van Vanakta Nak, nineteen eighty nine. And my apologies to anybody with like with, this looks like a Slavic dialect. Um, overtures based on Twelfth Night having been composed by Alexander Campbell Mackenzie and Mario Castelnuovo Tedesco and Johann Wagner. And then uh, the song "O Mistress Mine" from Act Two, Scene Three, has been set to music and solo sung solo by many composers, including Thomas Morley. Uh, also written by Percy Granger in 1903, Arthur Sullivan in 1866, Hubert Perry in 1886, Charles Villiers Stanford in 1896, Amy Beach in 1897, and it's a big list. Uh, let's see, more recently, um, Peter Racine Fricker in 1961, Sven Eric Johansson in 1974, Dave Matthews, yes, that Dave Matthews oh, in 2014, that Dave which is... Matthews. Yes, which is what led the show off, by the way. And uh, Paul Kelly in 2016, David Barton in 2019. Other settings for mixed voices have been composed by Herbert Brewer and Herbert Merle, among others. Come Away, Come Away, Death from Act 2, Scene 4 has been set to music by composers Gerald Finzi, Eric Korngold, Roger Quilter, and Gene Sibelius in a Swedish translation in 1957. And in 1943, Eric Korngold also set the songs A Do Good Man Devil from Act 4, Scene 2, Hey Robin from Act 4, Scene 2, and For the Rain It Raineth Every Day, which is one of my favorite pieces in the entire play, by the way. Interesting. I love it. It's It sounds like this very sad, I like a, not a torch song, almost like half drinking song and half like mourning a lost love. It's It's melancholy, and yet there's something fun about that song. So and 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 uh, and I'll play I'll play at the end of the episode I'll play us out with a with an adaptation of for the rain that raineth every day. All right, so that's a little bit of the history or a lot of the history of Twelfth Night its various adaptations and some of its source material, and we'll get into the plot. So we meet Duke Orsino, who is also referred to as a count, who is pining for Olivia. He fell for her. At first sight, but then has found out that he is rejected because of the fact that she has decided to spend time mourning over the loss of her brother. Her father had died not too long before her brother as well, so she's had a very rough year or so. Nevertheless, Orsino decides that he is going to be persistent in hunting Olivia. He is going to keep sending messengers to see her and woo her. 
It is his belief that while mourning for her brother is noble, she'll forget about him when the right golden shaft hath killed the flock of all affections else. In other words, one night with him and she'll forget all about everybody else. And I, I will point out, and this was this was always funny to try to teach the sophomores because it went over their heads, which is ironic considering this is their like Beavis and Butthead age. There are so many penis jokes in this play. Like so, so many, so many jokes that are just <laughs> dirty and sex jokes and dick jokes. And I'm just like, and they, they like whoosh, went right by them. I'm like, guys, there's like one, like right in the first scene. They're like, uh Oh, I'm like, yeah, y'all think we're well, smart. And like, you get to this and you're just like, Oh, Oh, wow. <laughs> Gosh. Back to the synopsis. We then cut to a shipwreck in which Viola and a captain have survived. It is assumed that at least at this point that Viola's fraternal twin brother, Sebastian, has perished and uh, that she's going to be mourning for him. And it's very important to say that they look, even though she is a girl and he is a boy, they look very much alike and she can pass for him, which is what she does, sort of. They wash up in Illyria. She gets an update from the captain about Orsino and Olivia, like basically, okay, where are we? Who's in charge here, etc. And Viola hears about Orsino seeking the love of Olivia. And she is so impressed that Olivia is going to basically shut herself off. So she's, Olivia is not just like rejecting Orsino. She's like, dude, I'm, I'm mourning for my brother. Could you leave me alone? Olivia is like, I think for like the next seven years or so, I'm just going to shut myself in and mourn like black lace thing over the fa- veil over the face and everything. And Viola is so impressed with this she decides she wants to be near her so she can share in this grief because she's now mourning for her brother and her father's been dead for a while. But the problem is that Olivia's not exactly going to hire Viola, what she's going to do. So what she does is ask the captain to disguise herself as a young man whose name's Cesario. And Cesario, Viola, will be a servant to Orsino. She will pretend to be a eunuch. And a eunuch was a castrated boy who served as a singer. And that will get her into Orsino's employ. And it, and it will work. We'll see that. Now, over at Olivia's court, we meet a couple of more characters. And now, really, all of Act 1 is like, it's just exposition after exposition after exposition. Because there's several characters in this play and a few moving parts. And this is where the fun of the confusion can come in. But this is where also the play can get crazy confusing. <laughs> because there's like two there's like two plots going on at once. And one of that is the the plot by featuring Sir Toby Belch, who is uh, Olivia's uncle, and uh, his friend Sir Andrew Aguecheek. Uh, Andrew Aguecheek is a dullard. He is syphilitic, but he's got money. And Toby pretty much mooches off of anybody who has money, and he's befriending. He's been mooching off his niece for God knows how long, and he's going to mooch off of Andrew. And what he wants to do is get Andrew and Olivia together so he can just live comfortably for the rest of his life. And then we have Mariah, who is Olivia's chambermaid. Uh, she warns Toby that he has to curtail his lifestyle or Olivia is going to cut him off. Um, it's also hinted at, by the way, as the play goes on, and then we see a resolution to the end that Mariah and Toby are actually quite in love with each other or that he really admires her, would readily marry her, if not for the fact that he's a noble and she's a servant. And we see the motivation for his mooching off of Andrew, etc. So Viola, back to her, because Olivia's never going to fall for Orsino. It's never going to happen. So he sees a way in here. But we go back to Viola. She gets the job as Cesario. 
and she goes on her first errand. But before she does, Ursino tells her all about Olivia, after which Viola realizes that she's starting to fall for Ursino, who is in love with Olivia. And it's going to get more complicated. But she's going to be professional, and she's going to be the messenger for Osino. She's going to woo Olivia for Osino. And a number of these, like, as you like, it's kind of the same way where there's like, as you like, it has this like woman dressed as a, as a man plot where there's another person who's actually in love with the woman pretending to help her learn about love. And it's all this crazy confusion stuff that involves cross-dressing as well. So that's, that's one of the other reasons I like it. It's, it's a really, really good play that way. Uh, so Viola heads to see Olivia and we meet two more characters, the final two characters of the play that we really have to pay attention to. The first is our fool, Festi, and the other one is Malvolio. Malvolio is a Puritan and therefore really devoid of humor or personality or anything that would make him relatively interesting or likable. Anyway, Viola shows up, is she is able to see Olivia, and unlike the other servants that Orsino has sent, Olivia is more welcoming to Viola, perhaps because they're actually pretty close in age. But she's only so welcoming in that she doesn't kick her out right away, and she tells Viola that Orsino needs to shove off a little bit more politely than she usually has. So Viola leaves, Act 1 ends, But Act 1 ends with Olivia sending Mariah to give Viola a ring that Viola quote-unquote dropped, but which Olivia ripped off her finger to give to Viola so that Viola would come back. Why? Because Olivia is falling for Cesario. So now we have sort of a love triangle. This becomes like a love dodecahedron by the end of the play. Dodecahedron. Um, Yeah, I guess once you throw in Malvolio and yeah. yeah. That's what we used to jokingly call it in my sophomore English class. We're like, this is a love octagon. We're like, yeah, it's a dodecahedron. People are in love with each other, but they think they're in love with the person who they're pretending to be. <laughs> yeah. Just like all sorts of crazy. And then Sebastian will eventually show up and throw another monkey wrench in there. So act two opens three months later. Uh, we open with Sebastian and Antonio. Now, Sebastian is the very much alive brother of Olivia. Antonio is the guy who pretty much took care of him, saved him from the shipwreck and took care of him for three months. And he finally and, and Sebastian decides, you know what? I've been out here for three months. Let me go into Illyria to see what the heck is up with this place. And, you know, I'm feeling a lot better now. Now, Antonio is actually wanted in Illyria. He was like a pirate at one point and or he killed like Orsino's nephew or something in a battle. So if he gets spotted in Illyria, he's going to be arrested. But he decides to go with uh, with Sebastian. He'll be give him a bunch of bunch of money as well. And so Antonio's risking his life for this kid. We then cut to Malvolio encountering Viola, chasing her back with the ring and unaware that um, Olivia is using him to get Viola to come back. Viola sees through Olivia's ruse. And recognizes what's going on in that Olivia loves her, or Cesario. Meanwhile, Toby and Andrew hang around with Festy. They get drunk because that's all Toby really ever does. Andrew continually is proving himself stupid. The three of them are drinking and shouting so loudly that they're in danger of waking everybody up. Malvolio hears this, basically tells them that they have to get their act together or that Olivia is going to kick them out. And well, since Malvolio is a Puritan and he hates Toby so much because Toby's the complete opposite of them, he's going to try to get 
Toby kicked out of Olivia's house. Mariah sees through Malvolio, however. She knows that he's a poser. He's a kiss-ass. He's more self-important than anybody. I think the word you're looking for is sanctimonious. (gasps) And uh, therefore, they scheme to forge a letter from Olivia to Malvolio, declaring her love for him. They have Olivia tell him to wear cross-gartered yellow tights, which is something they know she hates. And here you get the sense that Toby knows Mariah loves him. But again, their different statuses prevent any kind of getting together, so to speak. So while they're plotting against Malvolio, uh, we cut back to Viola and Orsino, and they conference after you know the meeting and everything. Um, he gives Viola this, some advice. They argue about the nature of love, and she tries to drop hints about how she feels about him. Instead, he just sends her back to Olivia, and even though she says that he should be prepared to hear a no... <laughs> Enter next Fabian. Now, this is a minor fool. He is another fool characters, but he is a minor clown. And he watches Toby uh, with Toby as Malvolio opens this letter, this fake letter, and um, falls for the whole trick, hook, line, and sinker. Toby said he is so impressed with this mischief that he will marry Mariah and be her servant. In Act 3... Olivia is continuing to pursue Viola, who continues to reject her. And while Olivia acknowledges this, she says that one day Cesario will make someone a good husband. And she hopes that she can still love him. Sir Andrew takes notice of this and he wants to leave. Toby, seeing his meal ticket slip away, tells Andrew that Olivia is just doing this to make him jealous. They tell him that Andrew needs to prove his love to Olivia. He has to be brave and he has to be smart. So what they do is they goad him into challenging Cesario to a fight. Now, part of the reason for this is that Toby is sucking way too much money off of Andrew. He needs the double income to continue mooching at the level that he is. So, again, if he can get their money, if he can get them together, he'll get double the money. It's then that Mariah comes in and tells them that the trick worked. Malvolio is dressed like a complete idiot, and he is going to go talk to Olivia. So they want to see this play out, and they head over to see Olivia and Malvolio. We then cut to Antonio and Sebastian, who have arrived in Illyria. Sebastian knows that Antonio is a wanted man in Illyria and says that Antonio really shouldn't have followed him. But Antonio does love the guy, so it's out of concern for him that he does this stuff. And Sebastian wants to see the sights, so Antonio decides to lay low, and the two separate and agree to meet up at the Elephant, which is a local inn. Olivia and Mariah discuss how Mar- Olivia is obsessed with Cesario, and she's obsessed with winning him, the same way that Ursino has been obsessed with winning her. This constant thought of unrequited love puts Olivia in a sad mood, and she needs someone who can help her wallow in said sad mood, so she calls her Malvolio, because Malvolio is usually dour. But because of the prank, he shows up dressed garishly and smiling. Olivia is debilitated by what she thinks is his madness, and she suggests that Malvolio sleep off whatever the heck is going on here. He, thinking that she wrote the letter, assumes that when she says, you know, to bed with you means like sleeping with her. He thinks that she's teasing him. This is the game of love, right? But honestly, she just thinks he's nuts and asks Toby and Mariah to look after her employee. Toby simply claims Malvolio is possessed. And to keep the joke going, they say they're going to lock him away until he's safe. After all that, Andrew does challenge Cesario to a duel, and 
but in order to actually scare Cesario, Toby delivers the message telling Cesario, Viola, about how mean and terrible Andrew is, which is total BS. This is right after Olivia has given Viola a locket with her picture in it, so Olivia's in love. Despite this, Viola continues to pursue Olivia on behalf of Orsino. And she's like, this dueling thing is ridiculous. Do we really have to do this? But Toby gets Andrew all worked up by saying that he and Cesario will f- fought and that Cesario is really tough. So he'll have to fight well. And they actually have the fight, but it's like one of those like picture like two, like when two guys do that, like fake fighting where they kind of like hold their hands out and almost like swim donkey style at each other. Like, and they're like, they're you just, it's like, it's really, really farcical slapstick comedy. If you ever watch this fight play out on stage, they are terrible at it. They don't want to hit each other. It's just like, and it's, it's all, it's all played up for complete laughs. But the thing is in the middle of the fight, which is silly, Antonio shows up. He thinks that Viola is Sebastian. And he jumps in and actually starts fighting with Andrew to, to defend Sebastian. And um, the problem there is that it alerts the police who arrest Antonio. And just as they drag Antonio away because they recognize who Antonio is, Antonio is a wanted man. He thinks that Sebastian, who is really Viola, so it's not really Sebastian, but he thinks it's Sebastian. He thinks Sebastian is, here we go, Stella. He's betrayed Andrew. Viola, on the other hand, realizes that Antonia was talking about her brother and she does the math and realizes that. And it's like an aside um, at that point, like she's on one part of the stage kind of just working the math out through her head like, oh, my God, my brother's alive. And the other two idiots are off on the other side of the stage. So as act four opens, Festy goes to Viola to get her to see Olivia and he finds Sebastian. Thinking that Sebastian is Cesario, Viola, he approaches him. Sebastian tries to pay Festy to leave him alone. Then Toby, Fabian, and Andrew enter and are shocked to see that Sebastian is there because they also think he's Cesario. Festy leaves to get Olivia. Andrew threatens, like a wuss, mind you, to sue for his injuries. And uh, Sebastian sees this as a threat and actually draws his sword and a real fight actually happens this time. Olivia comes in, sees the fight, and is upset it's possible Toby will kill Cesario, and she is upset that every time she leaves Toby alone, he does something stupid. So she stops the fight, and in that instance, she and Sebastian, who she thinks is Cesario, fall for one another. We then cut back to Malvolio, whom Mariah and Toby have locked up in a cell, a dark cell. The prank has gone too far, but they're really not stopping it at this point. In fact, they go even further. They dress Festy up as a priest, uh, Sir Topaz. Um, and uh, they Festy basically tells him that he's the light, and he purposely plays up the fake possession thing. He plays, plays Malvolio's words against him, even saying that God is punishing Malvolio for being a sinner. But then Toby has this moment of clarity and says that, like, you know, Olivia's really mad at me and she might cut me off. And it's possible that continuing with this joke will make things worse. So they agree. They go get Malvolio some paper and they get him to write a statement saying that he's not crazy. And now that he's with Olivia, Sebastian feels great because, well, he's being taken care of and Olivia wants to get engaged. But because she thinks that he's Cesario. They can't get like publicly engaged because he's a servant, but 
So they're going to go get secretly engaged. Act 5 has only one scene to it. It's one of the longer scenes of the play, and it opens with Fabian and Festy arguing over Malvolio's letter, and while they do that, Orsino shows up. Festy talks to him about how his friends abuse him by teaching him nothing. Orsino sees Antonio and is outraged at him because of the fact that, you know, Antonio killed Orsino's nephew in that battle. But he does have some respect for the guy as a fighter, and he asks why he dared show his face, knowing how he was wanted in Illyria. Antonio tells about how he saved Sebastian, pointing to Cesario, because uh, he thinks that, you know, as, as we see, um, and he gives the whole backstory. Olivia arrives and explains that Cesario has been with him, not with her, and thinks that Cesario has betrayed her. At this point, everyone... You did this on purpose, didn't you? Uh, no, um, it actually was in the synopsis I wrote years ago. I just kept it in there. Um, at this point, everyone is confused, and you might be too by this synopsis. It's a crazy play uh, because they don't know about Olivia and Sebastian's engagement, as well as the fact that these that Olivia and Orsina and uh, Cesario or Viola are twins. Orsino tells Olivia, just because I poured my heart out, you should be grateful and love me if i can't have you then maybe i shall make it so nobody can so he's figured out that olivia has fallen for cesario and he's going to stop the union out of spite because of the way that because of this betrayal that uh, cesario has done toward him then viola says she loves orsino and olivia feels betrayed the priest reveals the engagement and orsino relents and he says Cesario can have Olivia, but he never wants to see his face again. Thus, just then, Andrew walks in. He blames Cesario for hunt, hurting him and Toby. Viola doesn't know what the heck he's talking about because it was Sebastian who did that. She only remembers that kind of the fake fight that Antonio eventually broke up. Toby comes in. He's drunk um, and very, very hurt. Uh, he tells Andrew what he thinks of him, which is not much. Then Sebastian comes in and nobody can believe their eyes. There's Cesario. There's Sebastian. Oh, my God. Are they looking in a mirror? There's two of them. There's two of them. And guess what? Nobody can believe this. So we eventually get the realization that and the revelation that they are actually brother and sisters. Sister. And everyone realizes who has fallen for whom. But before we can completely wrap things up, we have a re resolution of the Malvolio letter plot in which Fabian confesses how they put Malvolio up to all of this in order to cut him down and mentions that Toby and Mariah are now married. And Festi, of course, gets the last laugh at Malvolio, revealing his role as Sir Topaz, the priest. Olivia then or asks Orsino to accept her as a sister-in-law, for Orsino has fallen for Viola. They all go off stage preparing the weddings of Sebastian and Olivia and Orsino and Viola, except for Festi, who stays to sing a melancholy song that sums up the whole play. And that's the song I mentioned earlier, The Rain It Raineth Every Day. So, love, twins, cross-dressing, betrayal, sort of. Did you like this play? Oh, gosh. It had all the ingredients of a Stella written fan fiction. I would say. 
Yes, I did enjoy it. I think there were a couple plot points that I thought, this is a bit too much, <laughs> but we'll go with it. Yeah. For instance, the whole Mal- Malvolio situation, that just, that was too much. Especially when it went so far where they yeah. thought it would go. And they kind of yeah, they kind of write themselves into a corner with that, don't they? Yeah. <laughs> and they're like, uh, maybe we should stop doing this. And they just stop doing it. I know. And then the other part was a little bizarre when the twins are questioning each other to mm-hmm. verify whether or not they are who they say they are, mm-hmm. and that they're Sebastian and Viola. That was a bit like like a spy film or a cloning yeah. situation or scrolls were like, tell me something yeah. that only you would know. Or yeah. I would know. But otherwise, yes, I had a lot of fun with it. And as I said, I think at the top of it, it made me wonder why it had taken so long for me to read it, because it was such a fun time during my, my break at work when I was reading yeah. it. Um, yeah. So it, the whole uh, the, the the Malvolio subplot is predicated on the fact that I think Shake at least the impression that I get is that Shakespeare just really wanted to make fun of Puritans. And he's a good foil for like Sir Toby, who's, you know, the drunk moocher. So he represents this sort of like false piety, you know, and and therefore they're all because they're caricaturish, you know, type of characters so they can get one over on him. And the the whole thing is like, you know, this period of time in the year where everything's disordered. Um, you know, where everything's out of order and out of whack, you know, Olivia's supposed to be in charge and yet she's not because she's locking herself away to mourn for her brother. So Toby can run amok, you know, Toby, the Lord of misrule, so to speak. And then Orsino is more focused on love than being the count. And it's just, and everything is like all flipped around, but by the end of the play order has been restored, mm-hmm. you know, and, and they all get the last laugh on, on Malvolio and Festi gets the last word, which Fools tend to do anyway, right? But when we get to the love, because the love thing is the one that people remember the most, and it's the thing that drives a lot of the adaptations. For instance, um, she's the man, the the love, the love dodecahedron between Orsino, Olivia, Sebastian, uh, Viola. You know that whole thing. It's like right out of this. It's 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 pretty faithful to this play. Um, and the question was like, so who's Olivia actually in love with? Because <laughs> Jesus is like, okay, I'm just going to love Sebastian because yeah. I fell in love with Cesario. And then all of a sudden, Orsino's like, okay, I'll marry Viola. And it's just like, you know, and I know it has to kind of end quickly. And, it, and it's the farcical nature of the play that yeah. it would be this zany. But like, I don't know. What's what's your impression of, of that? The Olivia one is a bit more curious for me and less easy for me to go with it than Mm. maybe the Orsino, if only because with the Orsino, it seemed like there was some appreciation. I don't know if that equates to attraction or not from Orsino to Cesario, just in how he would describe Cesario Mm -hmm. and the closeness between them, the effect, obvious affection and how quickly Cesario is brought under or into his trust so Mm -hmm. i think there's there's something already there so besides 
I think getting acclimated to the idea that this right hand man is actually a right hand woman. I think he has less of a potential mountain to climb. But with Olivia, I feel like she is 100 percent loving a completely different person. Yeah. Literally and figuratively, because it's not I don't she was definitely not only in love with the form of Viola slash Sebastian. It was the words. I would say mm -hmm. that the words that Viola, well, as Cesario was speaking, was definitely something that wooed her unintentionally wooed Olivia and Sebastian and how Sebastian speaks throughout the play, which granted we don't see him talk as much. Viola definitely has more screen time than Sebastian, but he doesn't seem up to up to par as Viola is, who's really wise and smart as well. So I don't honestly know. I feel like she's in love with the the form of the twin, so that's easy. But the words that were coming out of Viola's mouth, so I I don't. I wouldn't think that this would work. <sighs> I, I don't think it would either. I go with it because by that point, the play is so off the rails yeah. as far as and and as far as just like all the crazy crap that's going on that mm -hmm. I'm just kind of like, yeah, I'll roll with it. But when you do take a look at a closer look at it, it's like, yeah, why would she fall for Sebastian even even after she eventually she would figure out, wouldn't she figure out that you're not like Cesario or Cesario would actually show up because because Viola had no idea Sebastian was alive at that point. So if we didn't get the climax of the play in Act 5, there would have been a moment where Cesario showed up to Olivia's place and Sebastian was there. And it's like, uh, wait a second, you know, and, and doing that double take there. So sooner or later, we were going to get that moment. Mm -hmm. um, and just uh, just jumping now to a question is just as I was reading it and I was reading um, the scenes with Sebastian where Sebastian is really like crazy immature and a little bit more quick tempered and Viola's like the rational one and really thoughtful. I like Viola as a character a lot, but there's like, they're not they're Obviously they're not married because they're brother and sister, but there's like Shakespeare just kind of taking Romeo and Juliet and putting them kind of in this comedy in a sense, like, cause Juliet's the slightly more rational one of the two and Romeo's a moron. So, just like Romeo's this immature, like impulsive putz and Sebastian's kind of the same way, but more comedically. And then Juliet's Juliet is guided by her passions, of course, but um, she tends to be more thoughtful at least um, at first until the passion gets a hold of her. And I just kind of thought it was interesting. Is this like a Shakespearean trope of, of these sort of young characters because they were supposed to be teenagers as well? I don't know. So this, I guess, even though I feel like I've read a good amount of Shakespeare, uh -huh. I don't know that I can necessarily speak with authority on, well, this, she is like da, 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 because I, I, I agree with you. I really like Viola or Viola, Viola. And I just think she's like I said, intelligent and, and smart and quick witted. And I don't know that I necessarily have seen any female characters like that. And, and I'm increasingly disappointed with, the, the female characters. Well, I shouldn't say that, but definitely Hamlet's female character, Ophelia, mm -hmm. is my least favorite. 
And yeah, Juliet, to a certain extent, I think is intelligent. But given the fact that it's a tragedy, it's not like she has a lot of opportunity to have depth as well as levity. True. So he could potentially be, I mean, how many teenage, is it just Romeo and Juliet? What are the um, ages within Midsummer? Are there young oh people there as well? So I'm just wondering, uh, yeah. is this one of the few exceptions of having a really younger uh, cast of characters? That's, that's a good point. I think it's very possible. I mean, I don't, I'd have to, it's, I can't remember if Midsummer has, like they might be, when it was portrayed in the 1999, was it 99 or 98 movie, the one with Calista Flockhart and Christian Bale and Stanley Tucci and Kevin Klein um, and Michelle Pfeiffer and all that, which is a really good adaptation of Midsummer's. Those actors playing the main four characters, you know, who all fall in love with each other and stuff. Mm-hmm. They're in their twenties at that point. I think they're supposed to be in their like early to mid twenties or so. So they're young adults, uh, not teenagers per se. The Taming of the Shrew, I think, they're supposed to be adult, slightly adult or a little bit older. They, they're often played very older. I mean, the most famous adaptation of Taming the Shrew was uh, Richard Burton and Elizabeth Taylor, uh, who were very much adults uh, by that point. Um, but then you have like, but, but that translates well to a teen comedy because you have 10 things I hate about you. Uh, this, this I'm sure you could do with adults. Um, I don't know how, it, how, you know, you'd have to cast it. Right. Yeah. But but I think that the teenager there there is something very teenager about this or or the like older teenager type of thing. Um, you can play with the ages, but I just it just reminded me Sebastian reminded me a little bit of Romeo. That's why I was because of just the impulsiveness and the and the kind of oblivious to this. He's kind of oblivious to Antonio. If you notice, like he's friend he he is a he 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 cares enough or he appreciates Antonio, but. I don't know. Like the, one of the things I kept listening to is I was listening to the play and reading is that, like Antonio's kind of in love with Sebastian. <laughs> it does seem like he p- really puts himself out there more than because he already saved his life. So yeah. really, Sebastian should be indebted to Antonio. Yeah. But Antonio's given everything to him. Yeah. The money and that, which is why, like he really does feel betrayed. Like that is probably one of the saddest moments. When he thinks that Sebastian is denying he knows him. Yeah, because they arrest him and he's like, hey, Sebastian, can you give me some of my money so I can get out of custody here? And he's like, I don't have your money. It's sorry. Or she's like, I don't have your money. Here's what I have. And he's like, oh, my God, you like just ripped me off. (laughs) I know. I thought we were friends. So there is a lot. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know if there's anyone like that as uh, maybe besides – Romeo and uh, who is Romeo's BFF? Oh, Mercutio? Yeah. That might be the closest sort of bromance that we have, but does that really border on erotica? erotica, I I think you could make a case for the fact that Mercutio has a thing for Romeo. Okay. Um, Yeah, because at one point, doesn't he say something like, don't think about Rosamond or whatever her name is? Yeah, yeah. Think of think of me or something like yeah, that. So it is yeah. possible. It, yeah, you could play it. You could definitely play it that way. And then Shakespeare, you know, I mean, this is sixteen oh one. Shakespeare has a little bit of fun with stuff like that too. Yeah, or or leaves it open to interpretation. You know, and and 
with sexuality and um, and gender, especially in this play. Mm-hmm. Uh, we, we, you know, um, and and he's he is he's going after. At least this is the way I'm looking at it. He's going after traditional gender roles in a sense, um, because right at the, the like the very first scene of the play introduces the metaphor of the hunt when Orsino is talking about Olivia. There's a play on words with the word heart, you know, hunt, hunting the heart. And whoever is talking to Orsino, one of his servants, is talking about h-a-r-t which was mm-hmm. a, that era word for a, for a deer hunting a deer and and yet orsino plays it as i'm hunting the heart h-e-a-r-t and he's talking about olivia and this is not this is an overused trope to this point like nowadays we still see mostly very toxic men use this this sort of metaphor for trying to woo a woman you know the hunting like as as if women are prey which is like so sinister sounding, but like, you know, so that metaphor has been in place for hundreds of years, but like, he's kind of upending it. Like Olivia is not taking any of the bait and who wins. And it seems like Viola wins in the end. I mean, like who wins the hunt, so to speak in the end, do they all win? Do they all win? You get a car. You get a car. <laughs> it's like, Thank you, Oprah. Everybody gets a trophy. <laughs> yeah, I get in that sense, yes, because they all come. Well, I shouldn't say that because, you know, Malvolio and Andrew don't. And Anthony, depending on, you know, if he do we oh, really even see his reaction? Yeah, Antonio. Sorry. I don't it, know if we do. Yeah. So who knows if he's complete and who he might just want to be. A man in waiting. I don't know what that would be. Whatever the masculine form of that is for Sebastian for the rest of his life. But yeah, I like it because Olivia very much has so much agency in this play Mm -hmm. and that she dictates who can come and woo her (laughs) and when. And that when she puts her foot down on Orsino, she means it. And she's the one that tricks or, you know, hunts Cesario with the ring and tries to, to convince him and everything. I think it was her, it was she, it was she that brings the priest over mm-hmm. to tie, or I guess give a promise almost or a vow with Sebastian. So she's the one dictating terms, which I very much like and i think also it it shows that she's not a a fickle woman that i feel like often women are presented in these sorts of plays or just Mm -hmm. at that time in general that you know their emotions swing back and forth she loves me she doesn't love me because we start off with her in mourning and she's very adamant about because she lost her brother and her father she's very adamant about living in that mourning state and, and not yeah. receiving anyone who's kind of kind of forced to to talk to Cesario. But then when she sets her sights on Cesario, she's really laser focused on that and, and doesn't leave that attention for, for somebody else. And yeah, it's very gung ho with Viola. <laughs> I would say that she's similar. It's funny that she's getting entrapped 
I guess to a certain extent or ensnared, I should, that's a better word. So we can keep the hunting metaphor going ensnared by (laughs) Olivia. And then she has to like find a way out of it and also find a way to prevent any sort of like, she has to do her duty for Orsino, but she also has to try to not do her duty too well so that she herself can have Orsino. But I think in terms of, if I were to look at both of them comparing, I feel like Olivia definitely is more active in that column than Viola is because Viola is just in a in a tricky situation where she's pretending to be someone that she's not and having all these duties surrounding that whereas Olivia is Olivia her the entire play and so she can do that so I would say Olivia comes out on top for sure what but the problem is she didn't really get the person that she wanted Mm -hmm. which was Viola so that's the only thing so I feel like people slightly won but there's kind of an exception with it like you got you know you won a loaf of bread but there might be you know a small piece of of mold somewhere on the bread (laughs) i don't know that's that's the best metaphor i could come up with to add to olivia's agency she also puts her foot down concerning her uncle too because you know her uncle's been trying to take it has been taking advantage of her while mm-hmm. she's in mourning like you know she's in mourning he's like oh well you know she's not paying enough attention to me i'm just gonna spend her money and she finally turns around and is like hey buddy knock it off and you know that's that is her uh, that is her expressing her authority you know and so that that's again this is a this is a woman in a position of power, you know, who has who has agency to her, in a way that makes her very, um, likable, and not a character of ridicule, in the way that say like Katharina Katarina is in like the Taming of the Shrew, where she's like so like Olivia is not a shrew in that sense in that in that like you know and. Because that you want to talk about a problematic play, I, I've always enjoyed that play. But like when I look back on it, I'm like, yeah, Petruchio kind of gaslights her through like half of that play. Yeah. And and so there's no storyline with that. Olivia is who Olivia is through the entirety of the play. And you're right, she dictates a lot of the terms, and she does it as a as a woman in her position. Um, you know, she never loses her nobility. You know, the only thing that changes about her is that she stops mourning. You know, she kind of comes out of mourning. We'll talk about love and death in a moment. But but it's not like she has to pretend to be somebody else or something, whereas Viola does. And, um, you know, and it, and, and so Shakespeare's also playing with the the idea that in order to gain authority or, or whatever, that you have to be you have to act like a man or something. And, and Olivia never at one point never decides I have to act masculine in order to be authoritative. So I think that's, I think that's really cool about her, but at the same time, I find Viola charming and I can see why she would fall for Cesario, you know, Mm -hmm. and that there's a real intelligence to her. And you're right. The fact that she, a has to thread that needle, you know, like, Bob and weave among whatever metaphor you want to use, but she has to like navigate that whole situation between her CEO you know, and her and Olivia. And she does it really deftly, you know, um, even though I think Festy knows what's up, but Festy always knows what's up. Yeah, for sure. So, yeah. Yeah. So, so we have like, I, I guess, I guess like with Viola, we were just mentioning her, I'll, I'll, um, I'll skip down to the idea of masquerade, 
you know, we have disguises and not just disguises in terms of for the comical stuff like Sir Topaz and Malvolio and that, or, and, and we, or, and the cross-dressing with Viola, but we have like the mask that Olivia does put on. She does have to put on a mask at some point, the mask of the of morning and stuff. So when, when we think of masquerades and stuff like this, what role does it play? What, what if in effect does any costume mask disguise have on the various characters as well as their personalities? Does it reveal things about them? Does it, does it actually, you know, in an ironic sense, I mean, does it hide things about them? What, what was your take on the use of costumes, disguise and masks? In this <laughs> yeah, I think with the exception maybe of Festy, mm-hmm. that oftentimes, ironically, I, I do think the costumes reveal something because it seems like the person underneath is more inhibited. And yeah. so, wait, is that right? Inhibited. They're not inhibited. The, the, They're they, uninhibited. The, in their normal guise, they are more inhibited, yes. you're saying. And so yes. when the mask comes on, the inhibition starts to fade. There we go. Okay. Yeah. That's what you're going to You speak at. good. You speak good, I Mr. Try. I, I try. Yeah. I think maybe they have that sense of freedom that, you know, no one knows who I am, so I'm really going to act out. And then you get to see through that of, oh, well, that's probably who – this actually is. But I think with Festy, how we see him, I think he's probably the most authentic character mm-hmm. when he's just out and about. And I think he just has fun. So when he puts on the guise of the priest, right? Yeah. That that, that is him just just acting out <laughs> and and putting on a guise. But with yeah, I think Viola in particular, she really gets a freedom that she wouldn't normally had she and she realizes right at the beginning when she asked sea captain to help her out she knows that she can't go around just in her her feminine disguise in this city not only i think for safety purposes but also because she doesn't know this city and it's definitely going to be easier and how true is this even nowadays you know it's definitely going to be easier to suss the situation out as a man because Mm -hmm. you're probably not going to be as bothered and so she has total freedom in that and, and can really speak well whereas i think she would have to be somewhat flaky or flighty or uh, what's another? I don't know. Shy or reserved. If she were a female, she couldn't be as bold as all of that. Yeah. Yeah. And she's. Yeah. The, the one thing about Viola taking the disguise up too that's really important is that sometimes in, in, in comedies where a woman is playing a man or there's some sort of or, or even there, there's a mask or, or a mistaken identity. A lot of times it's by accident. Like somebody assumes that somebody is playing some role or is somebody else and that person has to like, I got to keep up this illusion, this lie, you know, whatever. Viola does this of her own volition. You know, you're right. She she realizes and she smartly understands that to to make her way in Illyria and what she wants to do, she'll disguise Mm -hmm. herself. She's under no obligation to do it, though. And nobody mistakes her for for Cesario. And therefore, oh, I have to put on the, the disguise, so to speak. In the adaptation that we'll be talking about, it, the the conceit is that in order to in order to play soccer, 
she disguises herself as her brother so that she can play on the boys team because the girls team at her own school got cut. That's a little more of a contrivance rather than I, if I, I I just got to figure out how to get through the world here. And then like finding out about like, you know, Olivia's not going to hire me, but if I can like, you know, she, she does a little bit of math here and she's like, Oh, I can, I can weasel my way into Olivia's court. Like it's all very much like, She's got the scheme, you know, she's got the scheme and everything, so, so it works out very, very well for her as a character. You mentioned Festy, who is the classic Shakespearean fool. And one of the things I remember Dr. Shy saying, this was 25 years ago, but I still remember it, because he would repeatedly bring it up, was that one of the jobs of Shakespearean fool is A, to act like a clown, because he's a fool, right? He's a court jester, right? <laughs> but his other job is to point out that everybody else is a fool. And in Twelfth Night, you have all of these characters acting completely out of whack. And he's going around basically being, look at all these fools. And it's that fit of irony there. And you're right. He is the most real, comfortable, because he is very much a, you know, there's no disguise there. He's in a fool's costume, but that's who he is. And, And he's ironically wise because of the fact that he doesn't have anybody that he has to fool. He can just make fun of everybody else and i mean that's 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 why i like the character so much um i i really do find him funny what what did you think of festy as a character yeah i agree i i think some of my well probably my favorite scene is between him and cesario just because Mm -hmm. cesario can give as as good as he gets and i think he recognizes the intelligence of the fool and the fool recognizes the intelligence of cesario whereas other people may not necessarily know that he's making fun of them (laughs) like andrew i think is is generally the butt of many many jokes that he doesn't understand yeah he's a dullard and and that's how he's played (laughs) For sure, yeah. But no, I think, yeah, Festy is, he definitely plays the part almost of like a Greek chorus Mm -hmm. in a Greek play as well, because I I think he is the one who is also speaking to the audience without directly speaking to the audience. But he he gives commentary on what's going on so that we, the, the viewers and the readers, can get a better glimpse into the action and what what is going on underneath yeah, and this recognition of Viola as almost being on his level, so to speak, is almost eliciting approval from the audience for Viola. Mm. Like, like it's Shakespeare. It's like it's him, him, Shakespeare through Festy saying, "Yes, Viola is the one you should like the most," and and the appreciation for the character. I think I think Shakespeare loved his fools, and I think he really likes Viola as a as one of his characters written. I think. It's it's like you said that that's a great little scene where the two of them just kind of size each other up and he's just like yeah you're all right and it's implied that one or both of them actually know what the heck is going on and and especially Festine's just kind of let it gonna let it go as far as like who's in love with who is in love with you you know just like kind of it's implied at least he's got he's got everything figured out but he's he's got he's got a Malvolio to mess with and such. One little tidbit, and and uh, we could I could ask you if you think that that Fabian Fabian at times seems unnecessary. It's like why didn't we just have Festy do all the lines? And the reason for that is that Festy in the original production, this is 
based on findings and studies, was played by one of the most famous actors of Shakespeare's time, one of the most famous actors in Lord Chamberlain's Men, named Robert Armin. And Robert Armin refused to say the lines that Fabian has. They were written for Festy. So what Shakespeare did is he changed the script and included a second lesser fool so that those lines could get in, but Armin did not have to recite them. So a little bit of actor ego. <laughs> and he had the pole. He was very famous at the time. Um, I kind of think it keeps Festy's character above everybody else without, and, and Fabian, he had all the low humor and stuff. Um, and what have you. Um, am I am I wrong on that or, or is that something you noticed or did not notice? I didn't notice, so I, I bowed to your okay. expertise on that. I remember when he popped up, I thought, do we actually need this character? Mm. And I had to go back to the beginning to even figure out because Fabian, he just enters. He yeah. enters and I think there's no description of who he is. And he's with Andrew and Toby, I'm pretty mm-hmm. sure. Yeah. And I had to go back and, and look at my character list to be like, who is this Fabian person? Should I have been aware of who he is? So seems like an unnecessary character for me. But uh, yeah, as for content of what he says. But actually, if I'm looking at it now, which something that I wondered often with Shakespeare is the difference between when they're in... I don't even know paragraph form uh-huh. speaking versus when there's actually I, I think poetic powder. verse yeah and so I'm looking at Fabian so he's got the paragraph I was told it's the lowly characters mm-hmm. kind of the yeah and then it does the fool does Festy always speak in verse I'm trying to find a section with I Festy. don't know I don't have the text in front of me oh that's no good. Well, no, I'm I'm looking at him with something there. So, nope, yeah. that 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 was a a hypothesis, and it doesn't work out. But he, so I I defer to you. Okay. He gets to sing. Uh, f- yeah, I just I think that like like I said, Shakespeare felt that a number of the lines or, or having that character a character in that scene was necessary. So he just kind of wrote around Armin's refusal. He's like, look, these scenes, these lines are beneath me, and they're beneath the character. I think it also. Festy is not grounded by the subplot Fabian is. So by giving Fabian those lines and have him be just kind of this other guy, they kind of dragged in like, Hey man, check this out. This is going to be hilarious. It frees up Festy to have fun with the Olivia Cesario or Sino plot, as well as the Malvolio plot. Like he's involved in the whole thing. And, um, so, yeah, so I think I think it's I mean, you might have been able to cut a lot of Fabian's lines, to be honest with you. But in the very least, it freed up Festy to do more of the high comedy um, and and the songs. I mean, what do you think of the songs? They they, he, they bust into song every once in a while. And it's they sure do. And and it's uh, I like the song at the end. Um, there's a couple of yeah. weird drunken, drunken, drinking songs here and there. Yeah, um, They're very melancholy, though. Yeah, basically about people not getting their girl. Yeah. So it's it's, it's thematically appropriate mm-hmm. because many of the people don't get the girl. I I like them. I like how the the 
first couple, I would say, well, definitely not the last one, but several of them are interspersed with dialogue. Mm -hmm. And so the song almost works as dialogue. Mm -hmm. It's not like they're talking over somebody. It's that they're conversing through song to a certain extent and they know what they're they're saying. So it's definitely drunk, drunken revelry (laughs) and the buddies know exactly the song and they're going after each other singing at the same time. So, yeah, I I had fun with it. The the last one, I know you said it's your your favorite. It was a bit of a puzzlement for me just because it seems to come out of nowhere. Mm -hmm. I think it's appropriate that Festy gets the final word, but it's just like an interesting musing to leave with. (laughs) And again, melancholy, even though everyone somewhat is paired up but perhaps it speaks to the issue at hand that we talked about first that well they're paired up but were they really with the people that they should have been with you know Mm -hmm. especially in the case of olivia i don't know but his last line is is fun just the fact that you know all this doesn't really matter so (laughs) i'll i'll end the song kind of thing but overall yeah i enjoyed them yeah um i know that it's not a uh it's not a um song in a midsummer night stream but it's puck in a midsummer night stream who faces the audience and closes the play you know and he has like a has a little poem that that he recites or whatever he says he's got the, the lines rhyme i'm looking at my i have a copy of as you like it of all things in this pile of books that is in front of me um, creating a barrier for sound. And uh, it's Rosalind, actually, who's the main female character. And as you like it, who does get the last word, she comes in, she says, it's not used, you're not used to seeing the main female character in the epilogue, but here I am. Um, I don't think, maybe because we're not used to the tragedies ending with a with something like that. You know, we're, the tragedies end in a funeral, the the comedies end in a wedding, right? And so this there's a, there's a fun to it it's like you know i can come in and break the fourth wall and say hey our play is done and 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 whatever it is um there is a melancholiness to this play i think that's the other reason i like it because there is a very close relationship between love and death in this play um now where Sino is Sino's not necessarily mourning anybody he's actually more in love with the idea of the pursuit of love you know it's mm. it's like he's it's like he's he, there are times where I swear he's more in love with the fact that he's going after Olivia than he is actually in love with Olivia. <laughs> yeah. You know, and then Olivia has seemed to because she when we first see Olivia, the image we get and the image I get in my head is one of almost like a black wedding dress. You know, mm-hmm. like she has married love, uh, married death in, in, in some sort or of way. Have, ha, ha, what's her name? Have a sham. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And great expectations. She's like, I'm cutting myself off for, I think it was like seven years, she said, or something to that extent. Mm-hmm. And which is a long time. You know? And so it's like, I'm going to I'm going to sit and mourn. So she has almost like in, gotten engaged to death and everything. And 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 images back and forth of love and death. Seem to happen throughout. Um so, um, so what is, you know, is, is that an accurate, am I being accurate here is, and, and does that create the, the, is there a melancholy that hangs over this play, uh, despite the fact that it is a comedy? Oh, I, I absolutely. I think beginning with 
No, I can't even say that. I definitely with Olivia, mm-hmm. though I think there may be when she starts to open herself up to Cesario specifically, I think that cloud of melancholia dissipates to a certain extent. Yeah. But also you have a lot of that cloud reside with Viola and Sebastian as well because they both believe that the other twin has been lost at sea and at times there's a glimmer of hope when like for instance I think the captain said well when I rescued Viola I saw you know he was swimming towards a mast or when Antony was (laughs) you know adamant that they knew each other she's like well maybe he knew my 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 brother. brother yeah yeah so i think that's also you know just the loss the loss of a loved one and and how that affects us and olivia was dealt a double blow with father and then brother short after it wasn't reverse was it it was father then brother yes it was father and the brother. okay and then just with twins i i have this romantic idea about twins but I feel like if you lose a twin who, you know, you were with, you were womb mates, as Megan Rapino <laughs> says about her twin, that, you know, that's got to be crushing, you know, losing almost a piece of yourself, yeah. especially because they were identical. So I absolutely would say that, but only mm-hmm. with those three characters. I don't know if I necessarily see any melancholy with the other people's. No, but there is certainly a darkness to this Malvolio subplot. I mean, they oh, lock sure. him up and everything. And this is a, as as has been described, this is a black comedy. You know, it is it is meant to be dark in places um, and and biting satire, especially when we talk about like uh, Andrew Toby and Malvolio, where he is really satirizing Puritans and he's satirizing um, of the upper crust. You know, because of, you know, the the sort of making fun of these people who are just basically they really don't need to have an op- occupation because they have money and they can just be drunk and, you know, whatever. So he's just kind of having a little fun with the rich. Um, but, yeah, the melancholy of it all. I think that actually for me, that makes the play that helps make the play what it is and what it and really, really good in that sense, because I think it provides a little more depth than say just some sort of screwball love comedy, you know, mm-hmm. not that screwball love comedies aren't worth watching, but there's having that hangover and having those reminders come in and, and, and the fact that you have characters who are dealing with loss and everything is all turned around because of it, I think helps helps give those characters motivation and helps really give them a lot of depth. Um, like you were saying, father and brother, a loss of your twin. And I was mentioning how topsy turvy the world is anyway, because we're a 12th night and epiphany, all that. It can, it makes total sense that your world would be turned around completely topsy turvy. If something that traumatic happened to you mm-hmm. and Shakespeare finds comedy in it in a way that's really, really um, smart in a sense. That was a statement, right? Yes, I was just seeing. Okay. I was pausing I to see if you had anything to, sure to add. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm done. Response. I was just seeing, seeing if you had anything to add to it before I went into the I do. last set of questions. 
So um, let's go back. So um, I, I we've covered just about everything. But there's, but there's a couple of it's like there's a big, big topic that I wanted to save to the end, and that is one concerning gender. Because, uh, we're, you know, we've talked about how, you know, Viola is descri- disguised as her brother, essentially as her brother, you know, and, and she's the man as her brother. It's Cesario here, but she's pretending to be Sebastian. Come on. Um, and there is a we've talked a little bit the role of women. We've talked about. Um, but uh, there's so there's two questions that we have, um, and I'll, I'll ask them both in succession, and we can just kind of discuss from there. The first is I find it peculiar. This is my question. I find it peculiar that Shakespeare chooses to have Viola as Cesario at the end of the play. So when the play closes at the end of Act Five, Scene One. They all go off to go get changed and then go get married. They're all still in like Viola's still dressed up as Cesario. She has not come back out and come back in and made an appearance as the as Viola all over again. The woman is back, right? I don't find it peculiar. Um can this be interpreted as a point revolving around gender and upending gender norms, which is a lot of what the play has already done at this point. And then you had added is this work problematic through a modern lens, specifically when considering uh, the transgender community, as well as I would add maybe non-binary mm-hmm. people as well? Um, what's so? So I guess kind of asking those is is Shakespeare? Shakespeare seems to be playing with the concept of, of gender and, and playing with gender norms and roles in Elizabethan society lampooning them satirizing them um even pointing out how ridiculous they are uh but does that does that translate well to now especially when we especially if you consider um you know uh the lgbtq plus community yeah and it's interesting i mean we were talking about this a bit off air Mm -hmm. When you you were at least talking about, you know, this is a question that I'll be asking. Mm -hmm. And I kind of sat back and and thought initially that you were giving lots of credit to Shakespeare. That when I think of Shakespeare, I don't necessarily think of, you know, potentially a feminist or someone who's trying to Mm -hmm. be countercultural to the time. And that's only because of my experience with other female characters in his plays. But potentially this this is the one. This mm. is the one. I wonder how audiences would have taken it uh, with with all this. And if there's, you know, some homoerotic feelings, how they would have felt about that necessarily. But in regards to this, I think I would agree that he is doing something special. And as you say, upending gender norms with viola because and it felt like a weird moment but twice at the very end is mentioned the fact that she has clothing stashed somewhere (laughs) by the captain Mm -hmm. it wasn't just once but it was twice i didn't understand why they needed to say it again but besides that yeah she ends as cesario and her future husband says that She'll continue, correct me if I'm wrong, she'll continue as Cesario mm-hmm. in public, but in private, she'll be his wife. That's correct, right? Yeah, I think so. 
Yeah, so she is she's able to continue playing these different roles, which I think not only shows her power as a woman and being able to play a potential political or or social role as Cesario, but also Orsino, who does not feel threatened at all by the strength of Viola's femininity and is willing to allow that and also trust trust her so much that she he still wants her in his court but knows given the times that that wouldn't be allowed as a woman so because i trust you we'll still have to have this this masquerade going on so i think i think you're right that there is something deeper going on mm-hmm. uh, the reason why i asked about you know trans reaction or um, non-binary action is I just wonder if it would you know if you were to do this now and didn't say that it was Shakespeare would people be upset because at the end of the day they're just putting on someone else's skin or clothing for a time but then they're reverting back to normal so I wasn't sure if that would necessarily be seen as as disrespectful like you're just in and out of that world you're not necessarily choosing the world and you had mentioned well is that necessary like could this be perceived as drag and i wondered Uh, if there's a difference there because what i see and i i might be wrong so i'm going to do my best here but what i see as drag is always like a performance and an art but at the end of the day they well, I guess maybe there are people that that is their life, but I just feel like it's different than this, which was not a performance or art. This was their life and almost security mm. um, that Viola had to do that. So I don't know if it would or I don't know how people would would feel. So I just wondered looking at it through the modern lens. <sighs> and it's a tough question because okay. we are not in that, you know, in in. Among them, so yeah, it's, that, it's hard for us also true. to speak outside of. I, it. I, and I don't want to speak for an entire other community. I would not. I would not go the route of telling of putting the story up up for somebody, asking about it and not telling them that it was a play by written by Shakespeare, though, because I think you're inviting a false judgment on there. I think you need to provide a context of of work when it was written in order to have to to, to evaluate it in its full merits. I mean, mm-hmm. we can talk about how there are characters in this 400-year-old play or any of, of the other 400-year-old plays by Shakespeare that are problematic in, in here and there. We can do that with any work of literature, fine. But I think you say, if I'm going to take this story and put it somewhere else and not tell you that it was written 400 years ago, you're kind of doing a disservice to the story. Or like, you're, you're, in other words, you're just kind of setting it up, uh, you know, um, so, so I would, I would always present it as like, you know, hey, read Twelfth Night by Shakespeare, like, and look at it through this lens, see what you think about it, like, you know, what, what we can discuss about it. Um, I will add that I think part of it, and this is what I was reading him and kind of the analysis I was reading of it, and too, I think part of it is a little bit of him being critical of the norms and laws concerning the theater as well. Mm. You know, it's just like, this mm-hmm. is ridiculous that a woman has to, that a woman can't play a woman, you know, that we have to have the man play the woman. So like, I think he's I think just for a, for a contemporary satire of him, that he, and, and point that he is making contemporary to him. Um, but back to the, the point about, you know, uh, transgender, non-binary. Um, I was also wondering if you could 
if you could play this in a way um, or adapt this in a way that would work toward making this character non-binary. So, I mean, and I, I know I'm not being very articulate about this, but I was like, could you adapt this so that, that Viola be that like, that's who Viola is that there's like a realization that happens here or mm-hmm. something like that. Like, you know, because adaptations don't necessarily have to, or interpretation, interpretive adaptations, like a, she's the man don't necessarily have to follow the script word for word. And could you change things, update it for modern times, and have this be something of a self-realization of 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 them at the end, or something, you know, and and yeah. and what are and and or realization that Orsino, the realization that Orsino comes to, it certainly sets itself up that that is very possible, you know, mm-hmm. um, and because he's keeping a. He is going to the term, the term, the, 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 the phrase, not the word non-binary. Um, it, you know, it wasn't in the common lexicon even as far back as like maybe 10, 15 years ago. And certainly like when I was a teenager, the word you would often hear would be like androgynous. Yeah, And there's an androgyny to Viola at the end of the play, especially through those lines that you mentioned about you'll, you'll stay as Orsino. Like he's inviting that androgyny or is he, he's accepting of it. He's maybe even celebrating it. So mm-hmm. could you extrapolate? Could you take that, set it now and even take it further and have a, what eventually becomes a love story about like, you know, of, of realizing identity. I mean, I, I don't have a full answer for that. It's me just kind of speculating off the cuff here. Um, yeah. and I, I don't know if either of us were the authority to answer it. So I put out to anybody who might be listening and be like, yes or no, this wouldn't work. Or yes, this is a completely problematic play and it's trash or it should be canceled. Or no, this is a really, this could be, could this be empowering to somebody who is, yeah. who is, uh, who is, uh, gender fluid, non-binary transgender, you know, um, it fits into whatever, uh, you know, um, category, I don't even want to use the word category, but you know what I mean? Yeah. So I think, yeah. And it might, it might either add or, well, I'll say add, but maybe mm-hmm. if, if you wanted to do a, do away with the, the focus on gender, you could also make the focus more about, um, orientation. Mm-hmm. So then it's, yeah, it's less about, well, is she a she or a he or a they? And it's more, well, what's actually her her love preference mm-hmm. or their love preference or his love preference and go that way. So you're right about, yeah, having, I think at one point you said it's more of like a realization of who Viola is at the end mm-hmm. and who Viola loves, too. Yeah. And I even think, it, you know, like it would it'd be interesting. We would go back to who Olivia is really in love with, like, you know. Yeah. Is there a queerness you can find about Olivia? I mean, like, I, I think that you could, if you were to go off script and interpret this and, and come up with a different adaptation for this, you could probably take this in a couple of directions that'd be really, because, because really to adapt this, you just need the conceit of somebody disguising themselves as a gender they are not, or 
or disguising themselves because they cannot exist within the space or, you know, or whatever. In this case of Viola, she disguises herself as Cesario because she knows if she walks into, into Illyria as Viola, she won't get the opportunity to do what she would like to do, which is be near mm-hmm. Olivia to mourn. Yeah. That love and death relationship. But she knows that if if I disguise myself as a eunuch. Now, there's a practical aspect to disguising herself as a eunuch because the eunuch were castrate and they had soprano voices. Right. So if she was a teenage boy or teenage male with a very high, with a high lilt to her voice, to his voice and said, I'm a eunuch, that was socially acceptable. You know, mm-hmm. like it, it just there was a practicality to calling herself for that, because that way she can put the disguise up and nobody's going to be like, um, why do you sound like you're, why do you sound like an 18 year old girl? It's like, oh, because I am an 18 year old girl, but a person to be a guy. <laughs> but if I'm like, yeah, they kind of they, 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 you know, I'm, I'm a eunuch so that I could sing really prettily. I'll be like, OK, we accept you. But at the same time, like, you know, it's it's, um, you know, you can again, we could play with. You can play with that. You can play with the motivation. It's just the idea that somebody is disguising as somebody who's not, and there's a practical way to get it. And I don't know. Is Olivia like in love with this? They're in love with them. Like, I mean, yeah. So there, there, I think there's, I think there, there, something about this is very ripe for a lot of different adaptations and interpretations. Mm-hmm. Um, that even 20 years ago, 25 years ago, when I read it, um, I wasn't. Ex- to that when we mm-hmm. first read it. So I think that the increasing cultural shift, and it hasn't shifted enough, obviously. Yeah. But the cultural shift toward toward acknowledgement and more acceptance of people, you take a look at this work and you're like, wow, there's a lot more to this than just this silliness and you can you can mine this for a lot more there's 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 a lot to swim around in as opposed to some other things yeah i mean part of me would be like just lean in <laughs> lean into the queerness yeah. of it for sure i mean i could see an adaptation where viola ends up with olivia sebastian with antonio <laughs> and orsino is just alone because it seems like he is similar to King Yarbus in book four of the Aeneid, where he doesn't necessarily I feel like he may not actually love Olivia, but he just loves the power and like the the kingdom that he can potentially get mm-hmm. from it. So, yeah, just have him be on his own and trying to wrest power in some other way. I, I think that would be really interesting. He, he loves it, it's almost like he loves the he, he sees it all as a game that he likes to play. I think for it's what's interesting is there's a part of him in the very beginning of the play that makes you think that if he if he actually won the game so to speak I'm just in those if I'm putting it in those terms if he wins he wouldn't know what to do with himself like mm-hmm. it's almost like he doesn't actually want to win he loves playing the game more than he actually likes winning the game even though he would never tell you that so you could play with that too like is he relatively unsatisfied at the end or can you find some satisfaction because he's not an unlikable character. Right. He's not he's not Malvolio. There's no villain in the play. Malvolio is the closest thing. Malvolio gets what's coming to him, you know, and (laughs) oh, God, I don't like Malvolio. 
I'm surprised. I mean, this is not the place for it, obviously, because it's a, there's another place for it. But that they didn't have that character and she's the man. It was just the tarantula. Yeah, I don't think they could do anything really with it. The closest they had, they had Malcolm, but he, even yeah. Yeah, but you know, Malvolio kind of reminds me of Mandy Moore's character in Saved. And actually, funny enough, oh, Amanda Bynes' character in Easy A, because they're like all they're both. I think they are both like very, very Malvolio like characters, except instead of being Puritans, they're evangelical Christians. And there is a puritanical aspect to the very, very hardcore evangelical Christian. So if you were to set this in modern day, that's what you would make Malvolio. Mm. Like the really hardcore you're going to hell for stepping one inch off the straight line, you know? Yeah. So that like the, 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 those sorts of, um, you know, uh, those sorts. And I think that's what, and that's what Malvolio would have been in, 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 if, if we were just playing this setting, this at like a, in a modern, modern context or something like that. So in that regard, I'm like, yeah, get his, <laughs> Uh. All right. So is this required? (laughs) I think so. If you want to have a Shakespeare that is not consistently (laughs) dour and Uh with many, many deaths, then this is a a light tale that Mm -hmm. also has some depth to it and depth to the characters that I think you would appreciate. So I think it's good to add it to your Shakespeare repertoire. I would, if this were a gender studies course or something we were talking about, like more academically, we were talking about a few minutes ago, I would say, yes, this is really worth studying. If I were giving this to high school students again, it would be either this or Midsummer's, like I used to teach because Midsummer's is another play that I think is easily like another one. You could easily see the comedy and all of it. But I say this with an asterisk that it is in that I think much like a lot of the comedies, this is much better seen than it is read. Like, I think that, yeah, I want to read 12th night. You should read 12th night and you should go see 12th night or, mm. or find a very good production 12th night. Like that's like a stage production or something and, and, and see it because there's a lot of what's here that you need to either hear or see in order to really like it's, this is a hard play to just flat out read to yourself. You, you know, like when I listen to it alongside the text or when I see it on stage and this, my first exposure to this was on stage. It wasn't in a, as a sign in a class. And I think that's one of the reasons I loved it immediately because I saw it in the setting for which it was taking place. Whereas some of the other drama that we've read, I could read and not see performed and still really, really appreciate it. Like a doll's house or, um, uh, the, the glass menagerie or, um, a raisin in the sun, right? Like even Macbeth, like I can read that and find the richness and see this in my head. And I, and I, I don't necessarily need to see a performance, but I'd love to see a performance. This I'm less likely to be like, okay, just read this. And you don't necessarily have to see a perform to really get it. I think, I think this needs to be seen and heard as much as it needs to be read. And so if you're like, oh, I, this, where do I start with the comedies? I say, see 12th night, 
read Twelfth Night, see Twelfth Night, hear Twelfth Night. So I would say required reading with the asterisk of seeing it performed or hearing it. So we have we have a couple of Facebook comments in our feedback, and they're both from our Scholastic Book buddy Robert Ward. They're both about uh, episode sixty, and and Robert, to his credit, sent us some very funny memes. Um, one of which was regarding the fact that, like, you know, he seemed to be enjoying our young adult special, even though we were like, he's going to hate us for this because he's like an <laughs> adult. He was like, at one point, I think he said he was reading, there was a meme about him reading Percy Jackson because somebody recommended it and they're turning around and be like, I actually like this. So he had some fun with it. But um, he, he posted two comments to Facebook. One was about halfway through listening to the episode. The other one was toward the end. And the halfway through comment is I'm only halfway through the episode, but I got to say, I love hearing you talk about banned books, school policies, approaching student education. And if you want more of that, both of us were on a fairly recent episode of questions. We don't have answers, or at least it was back in what September was it October, October, November or so. Um, I think it was, November. it was November. It was after the election. Yeah. So um, sometime in November with Q no way, if you want to go listen to Stella and I talked to Don and, uh, and Harry about uh, parents and school policies and, and that sort of stuff. It's, I really enjoyed the conversation. And then I listened back to it and I was like, Oh, this is really good. So I back into Robert's comment. He says, I read every article about politicians wanting to uh, I read every article about politicians wanting to ban or burn books. One of my recent favorites is a parent claiming it's hard to preserve innocence and in how their 15 year old has lost some of their childhood now due to an assigned novel. Oh, man. Anyway, also, I listened to an audiobook for Flowers in the Attic for the first time this year. I'm familiar with the two film adaptations, but haven't read or seen the sequels. I absolutely recommend it. Mina Savari does a great job, and the book is so trashy, <laughs> slash over-the-top, slash ridiculous, that it was so much fun. Yeah, I believe the 80s adaptation of Flowers in the Attic starred Christy Swanson, um, oh, if I'm not mistaken. But yeah, I, I've never read V.C. Andrews. Um, but uh, have a deep appreciation for uh, her work anyway, because of the number of people I knew who just that was like the thing they read, you know, I mean, it's just interesting. Anne Rice recently passed away as we're recording this. And Anne Rice wrote like vampire erotica, you know, I mean, Stephanie Meyer is like chaste compared to Anne Rice. And um, I actually tweeted out in one of my accounts, like, I wondered if any of the kids I taught back in the mid 2000s to early 2010s who were like total twihards ever went and read Anne Rice because Stephanie Meyer was like this Mormon allegory using sparkle vampires. And in in interview and Lestat and all that, they were just getting it on. But Anne Rice and 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 VC Andrews and and some of the you know Daniel Steele and Stephen King and so like these were authors that a lot of people I knew. This was like you know forget the forget the great authors that we were being assigned in high school. This is what got them to be voracious readers. So that's why I've always had respect for like Flowers in the Attic and stuff like that. As as wackadoo as I've heard that book is. Um. Yeah, so, and then at the end he says, then he gets to the end of the episode. Dragon Tattoo? Are you serious? <laughs> and and I think he posted a meme of him being Charlie Brown and you being Lucy pulling the football away. Of course. Yeah. 
You're not Lucy, though. <laughs> I would hope You not. do not know. You are not Lucy. <laughs> um, I am clearly Charlie Brown, but you are not Lucy. Um, <laughs> you would be your Sally. Uh <laughs> The book podcast overdue just celebrated a milestone episode by covering the book and a podcast I listened to recently cover the film. Oh, geez. In a mini series focusing on David Fincher. You know, I've never seen that movie. Um, the Fincher one. I've only seen a few of Fincher's movies. Um, Are you a Fincher fan? Uh, I don't not like it. He's, I don't go out of my way to watch his movies, but I do enjoy his movies. Even the one that he's disowned, I kind of enjoy. <laughs> Which one did he disown? Alien 3. Oh, he doesn't like that. Alien yeah, he, he, 3. Yeah, yeah, there's a whole controversy with the studio and stuff. But I I, I, I like to Alien 3. Seven's pretty good. Fight Club was decent. Yeah. I'm trying to think of what else I've seen recently that he's done. But um, but then again, I'm I'm behind on a lot of recent movies anyway. He said, I gleefully listened to both because I've never read the book nor seen the films and thought there was little chance I'd ever get around to it. Once again, however, Stella throws a curveball and completely upsets the apple cart. My pleasure. So that is <laughs> that is the feedback from Robert Ward. So thank you very much. And if you have any questions about um, this episode, any of the topics we talked about, um, or past episodes, like feel free to email us um, comments on our stuff, and we are still reading the stuff aloud. Um, and before I get to asking Stella what we're reading next week, don't forget, I've mentioned it a couple of times, next week, Stella and I will be over on Pop Culture Affidavit. That is my other podcast. Um, it's episode 128, and we're going to be talking about She's the Man as a companion to uh, this episode. Um, you don't have to listen to this episode to listen to She's the Man, and you don't have to listen to She's the Man to listen to this. But um, but they are they are going to complement each other, at least that's the plan. But after that, we have another book assignment. So Stella, what are we reading for episode 63? Sure, yeah. Well, many people have asked me, what happens when you put two boys in a tree? And so I think it's time that Tom and I investigate this quintessential question of life as we read a separate oh. piece by John Knoll. Wow, I haven't read that one since junior year of high school. <laughs> Welcome. Phineas, right? Is that one of the kids' names? I think it is, yeah, Finny. Finny by short. Yeah. So, oh, all right. Sure. Well, a separate piece next month. Ooh. Come back for that. Until then, check out Facebook, Twitter, and all the other things. And as always, thank you very much for listening and take care. Be sure to stash your clothing with a nice sea captain. Good night. <laughs> when that I was a little tiny boy with the hate, hope, the wind and the rain. A foolish thing was told for the rain it rained every day with the hate, hope, the wind and the rain. Every day. Thanks 
for listening to Required Reading with Tom and Stella, which is brought to you by two true. That's too true. If you're interested in learning more about the books we've read or want to comment on the episode, follow us on Facebook at facebook.com slash required reading with Tom and Stella. If you would like to email us to comment on the episode or continue our discussion, you can reach us at requiredreadingcast at gmail.com. We will read every email we get on future episodes. We're looking for more visibility, so if you liked this episode or the show in general, why not leave us a review on iTunes? Thanks again for listening, and come back next month for our next episode. With the wind and the rain, my swaggering, I never could thrive. For the rain keeps raining every day. With the hay, with the hope, with the wind, with the rain, for the rain keeps raining every day. With a hey, ho, the wind.